stopped having dairy overnight. I just, one day in November 2014, I just decided at dinner that I'm not going to have dairy anymore. And I stopped and uh, I was not doing anything different. I was not eating less. I was not exercising. Uh, I just stopped having dairy, which was a pretty big chunk. I would have two glasses of milk a day and mm. a pound of yogurt every day. That was literally my routine for 30 years. And um, I stopped doing that. Within three weeks, I lose 20 pounds. to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and I am so honored and thankful to have Dr. Soham Patel joining us today. How are you, sir? Doing well, Lori. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, um, hello to all your viewers. Wonderful. And I will tell you, let me see. Dr. Patel is a gem of a find. He's an endocrinologist who encourages a plant-based diet and has some amazing stories to share with those. So when I found Dr. Patel, I was on the phone with him not too shortly thereafter. (laughs) It's like, I'm very excited to meet you. (laughs) It's so funny how you you stalk people that are specialists, like, okay, I like you. So, um, but that is, you know, so exciting to see some specialists that we think are very important to be in, you know, the fight against diabetes and things. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you came from and your, how you become and decide to go into medicine and especially endocrinology? Yeah, so I was born and raised in the western part of India from the state of Gujarat and uh, the city is called Ahmedabad. It's the same city where uh, Mahatma Gandhi started his independence movement from. Um, so it's a very historical city. It's one of the growing metros. But um, I went uh, schooling as well as med school there. Um, and um, after that, came here to U.S. and um, um, did my residency in University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Uh, and then I pursued my endocrine fellowship at uh, UAB in Birmingham. So going back to why I uh, entered medicine, so um, I did quite well uh, academically. I was in the top 100 students uh, in the state. There are about 50,000 students who appear for 12 uh, grade boards, uh, which Mm -hmm. is a standardized exam, and I was uh, 80th in the merit ranking. So I had options of going into whichever field uh, I chose to. Um, The thing that brought me to medicine was, and this is the quote I used even in my interview is, medicine is the only specialty where you can learn about the mysteries of the best creation in this world, which is the human body. Mm. And it's still an endless field. You know, we're still learning more and more as we go. So that's something that brought me to medicine and it still keeps us pushing further. in med school, uh, I quickly realized uh, I was wired more so to be a physician than a surgeon. Um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of struggled through my surgery rotations, but I did exceptionally well in medicine-related rotations. And that's how I am. I like to analyze things, sit down, talk to the patient, build up a rapport, and you know, see the patient 
uh, over years. Um, so medicine gives me that kind of, uh, you know, freedom to do that. And while in, in the residency, I went through different rotations, keeping in mind, you know, what would interest me. And every rotation that I would have, you know, four block, four week blocks, uh, the first couple of weeks would be exciting, but then by the end of third week, it would start getting redundant. Endocrinology was my only rotation that I felt all the four weeks were equally exciting. Hmm. It was a very well-designed rotation at University of Tennessee. We had nine endocrinologists in the division headed by Dr. Bill Law Jr., who has been one of the board uh, and charter members of American College of Endocrinology and American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. So he was a great mentor in addition to all the other uh, endocrinologists under him that I had the opportunity to train with. So mm. I did one more rotation there to kind of make sure is it again really the same excitement I'm feeling. So I did a rotation in second year as well as third year of medicine residency and applied for fellowship and then matched at uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham. Again, an exceptional program. Um, my program director, Dr. Fernando Wale, um, he, he focuses a lot on diabetes now, but uh, he's, he is a very laid back person and um, would learn a lot just from talking to him. You know, casual chats, you would end up learning a couple of things new every time you talk to him. Hmm. Um, so great mentors. I think I've been blessed with very good mentors throughout my training. And um, during the fellowship, um, we obviously had a lot of protected time to do research. And I'm backtracking a little bit uh, because the seed of uh, plant-based nutrition was planted into me by my maternal grandfather. Uh, he was a civil engineer by training. He worked uh, in the government back in India, supervising building dams. But uh, he was a very avid uh, reader and uh, would spend hours in the library. And that's where he started reading Dr. Barnard and Dr. Joel Foreman and Dr. Herbert Shelton, um, who pioneered fasting in U.S. back in the 1940s. Um, and uh, treating people by natural ways of nutrition and you know fasting, he even ran a magazine called American Hygiene Society. Mm -hmm. um, so my grandfather was quite influenced by his work, and um, he would share all that with me. And I kind of understood that I've I've grown up as a lacto-vegetarian, but had a lot of dairy in my diet. So he would show me the things about. Dairy was not the best thing to have, but I somehow didn't get the memo there early <laughs> on. And he's been, he was, he was telling me all those things even before I entered med school. Mm. But something clicked when I was in fellowship. I'm like, okay, grandpa has been telling me about all this. Let me start looking into it myself and see what the data is. And that's when I started pulling up papers and uh, I was quite surprised, astounded that I, why didn't I look at this earlier? And uh, if I didn't make changes going forward, I was just kidding myself, you know, putting blinders in spite of all that data. There were studies were published back in 1999 by Dr. Dean Ornish, the lifestyle heart trial reversing heart disease with a whole food plant-based diet, exercise, stress reduction, social uh, connectivity and uh, counseling. 
Dr. Esselstyn had something similar uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, going back till 1921, there were trials done by Dr. Anderson where within 16 days of going whole food plant-based, 70% of patients came off insulin in just 16 days, mm. not even months. So that's where uh, it propelled me to first make the change myself. I stopped having dairy overnight. I just one day in November 2014, I just decided at dinner that I'm not going to have dairy anymore. And I stopped and uh, I was not doing anything different. I was not eating less. I was not exercising. I just stopped having dairy, which was a pretty big chunk. I would have two glasses of milk a day and mm. a pound of yogurt every day. That was literally my routine for 30 years. And um, I stopped doing that within three weeks, I lose 20 pounds, um, just like that. And wow. come off from the abdomen, you know, where I wanted it to come off from. And so to prove it was from that, I started having a little bit of yogurt again for a week. Uh, and within a week, I gained five pounds back. Wow. And then I stop again and it comes off again. And since then my weight has stayed the same. About a year ago, I started doing 30 minutes of uh, resistance training in the gym twice a week. And with that, I've lost another four pounds, but now I'm again at a plateau where I, I don't watch the portions or the amount of food I eat. I do watch what I eat, what type of foods I eat, but I don't amount, watch the portion or the amount and I don't eat after 7 p.m. I try to restrict my feeding window between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Okay. So 12 hours of intermittent fasting. And with that, it stays pretty steady. So you found a personal journey of weight loss and, and evidence by your grandpa. I love that so much. How long is your grandpa still living? He passed away two years ago. Um, but uh, he had a very active 84 years of life. 84. Yeah, except oh. the last two weeks, he, he kind of fell and slipped uh, on the floor oh. and fell and hit his head. And okay. Had complications from the hemorrhagic stroke and died from that. But oh. um, till then he was walking, he spent like a whole month staying with us just before he passed away. And he would walk, uh, five miles every day wow. and um, he still had a, a tremendous appetite. Uh, he would eat a lot of food and uh, not have any issues. That's wonderful. Um, and sleep like a baby. <laughs> not your typical 84 year old. Yeah. Oh. Um, so I'm curious, why do you think it is that you know, you and I have spoken regarding the number of endocrinologists that we know that, you know, recommend or follow a plant-based diet is so limited to what, three or four. And why do you think that is? Why is this specialty so resistant? Because I know a ton of cardiologists and so many family practice doctors, but why, why endocrinology? Why do you think that, or better yet, can you explain what endocrinology is, the specialty for those who don't know, and then why you feel like there may be as a particular block or resistance. So it's interesting you mentioned why, what is endocrinology? So endocrinology is the study of hormones and metabolism. And, and it's interesting, kind of ironic that 
the board certification that we get once we pass the boards is board certified in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. Mm. It is not just endocrinology that is said, you know, the board uh, involves metabolism as, right. as part of that certification. And yes, there is a lot of research into, you know, molecular endocrinology and, you know, bench research, but energy metabolism, um, calorie, you know, uh, research, but um, there is not been enough focus in endocrinology training on understanding the data on plant-based nutrition. Hmm. It's been there for decades. It's nothing new. It's just not been explored as much. And it's still kind of a, a, a traditional view where calorie in, calorie out kind of mindset, um, exercise more, eat less, uh, which... Interestingly, there are endocrinologists who have debunked that uh, paradigm with the research. Dr. Clay Semenovich, I believe I said his name correctly, he's the endocrine chief at WashU, in, uh, um, WashU St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, his research actually debunks the theory that calorie in, calorie out, uh, it's not true anymore. The quantity uh, of calorie is not as important as the quality of the calorie. Interesting. Um, like a, a calorie coming from fructose in a refined form ends up in the liver, does not, cannot be used by the muscle or the adipose tissue. Hmm. So uh, there is enough research. It's just the focus has been lagging in the trainings. Uh, and um, I think that's a huge reason why we don't see a lot of. Uh, awareness of plant-based nutrition in endocrinology. And, and if we take a little step back, I think the whole focus of uh, modern medicine is symptom pill, symptom pill kind of mindset, not really looking at the root cause and addressing the root problems to reverse things. But that paradigm shift is slowly happening in medical training, but it's still a lot of distance to go. I think those two things together are the reason why we are seeing lack of awareness. And then there's a lot of um, funding from entities for keto-based research in many of the programs. And that uh, tends to cloud the quality of data out there. You know, people are anyways confused with all these guidelines coming out. And then all that needs to be done is create doubt about good data by a not so properly designed study. And then that's it, people have doubt, they're not gonna want to you know, make any changes and just continue with status quo. So do you think that it's more effective than as for someone like us, like you and myself and others who got this crazy hair going crazy thing going there? <laughs> um, is it more effective or more beneficial to actually go towards the patient then? So, you know, start looking to the layperson and the general public and educating them in hopes that they'll take the torch and educate their other physicians. Yeah, so the top-down approach is not going to work. It's mm-hmm. just going to create more bureaucratic, you know, layers. Uh, um, and the community approach to spread the awareness is what um, uh, 
Uh, I am collaborating with a group of physicians, pharmacists, health coaches, and community leaders here in Tampa Bay. And we are working towards making a plant-based nutrition movement, uh, movement uh, nonprofit organization, mm -hmm. which is uh, already up and running in Chicago by one of the cardiologists at Rush, Dr. Steve Loam and uh, Dr. Kim Williams are uh, actually part of that. And uh, we are trying to replicate that here in Tampa Bay. And, and um, the goal is to bring the awareness of that plant nutrition and the benefits to the lay people out there and create a community support where we can, you know, add more menu options in the restaurants, you know, have cooking demos where people actually learn how to cook. Because I think in United States today's time, uh, cooking is a lost skill. Uh, we still need to educate people to, you know, start how to cook again because convenience is easy, but convenience is not healthy. Right. Absolutely. I agree 100% because many of the times when I mention, you know, changing someone's diet, they're like, oh, how do I cook that? I'm like, <laughs> I was like, you just cook it just the same as other foods. It's really interesting when you start thinking about it. Um, the lost art of, of cooking is been detrimental to our health because you're exactly right all the fast food is not healthy um what is the name of your center yeah so um i'm not boosting or claiming anything here but i think i've coined the word preventive endocrinology so the name of my clinic is center for preventive endocrinology and nutrition as i wanted to incorporate prevention and nutrition both in my uh, name of the practice and that's how it's just not the name it's how I practice uh, with each patient that I see for diabetes or thyroid graves uh, high cholesterol hypertension I'm always focusing on nutrition as an equally important strategy of treatment along with medications for the need so nutrition is not just like a one-line blurb for me it's a 20-30 minute talk with the patient Right, absolutely. And can you give us some, um, maybe some examples of patients or statistics with, you know, what you've seen personally with your patients? Like, how long does a type two diabetic typically take to stop insulin or reverse their disease, or maybe type ones? How much they're improving? And do you have any um, encouraging, sight uh, insightful stories for us? Sure. So. Um, it is individualistic, you know, everybody is going to respond differently, but what I've seen as a recurring theme is when uh, any patient uh, adopts a whole food plant-based lifestyle, which means, you know, vegetables, beans, fruits, whole grains, and a handful of nuts, and avoiding animal foods, including dairy and eggs, as much as possible, I think the shift typically happens when they're eating uh, almost 80 to 90% plant-based diet. They really start seeing the benefits. What I usually tell my patients is if you, you decide the pace, if you want incremental changes, then you go with incremental, you know, if you need incremental benefits, then you go with incremental changes. And if you want drastic results, then you want, you would have to go drastic changes. Um, so that way the patient feels empowered on deciding what pace they need to make the change. And I'm there to help them make the change and not that I'm telling them to do this, do that, and they're feeling patronized. 
Um, so they feel an equal partner, which is what they, they, if they don't work on making changes, I can say everything in the world, but not see any results. So they are equal partner in their journey. Mm. And That's a good point. Massive action equals massive results. Yeah. So what I've seen is when they make a significant change, they start, you know, within a week. If they go whole food plant-based, I've seen them going low on their blood sugar that they have to start cutting back on their insulin. Mm. Um, I had a patient um, that I used to follow and she was a type 1 diabetic for 30 plus years. Very well controlled on an insulin pump. A1C was always under 7%, more near 6.5. But her sugars would still go up and down quite a bit. A lot of variability and uh, not sleeping well, chronically little gaining weight over years. Um, just not having that energy to do things anymore in spite of her lab numbers being all good or in very good range. And so I kept bringing up the you know, idea of whole plant food nutrition with her and something clicked with her in her visit in December 2017. And the next time I see her in March, she had gone whole food plant-based uh, the very next day after the last visit. And within three months, she had lost 20 pounds mm. just coming off. She was not doing anything different. She was already active, so her activity hasn't, hadn't changed. Um, she was eating almost 200 to 250 grams of complex carbohydrates a day from fruits, vegetables, beans, and whole grains versus 50 grams per day before. Wow. And her sugars were more flat um, on her pump downloads. She was sleeping better. Her LDL went from 103 on a statin to 68 on the same dose of same statin. Her blood pressure got better. I had to take her off her lysinopril. Um, she was eating, as I said, she was eating a lot more complex carbohydrates. Her insulin requirements on the pump were around 80 units per day. That Those went down to 32 units plus or minus three units per day. Wow. Her insulin carb ratio was one to seven, which I had to change it to one to 20 because she was getting so hypoglycemic after bolusing. Wow, can you explain Can you explain a little bit what you mean by carb-insulin ratio? Because I think that really means a lot. Sure. So insulin-carb ratio is a metric that we use to see how sensitive to insulin is a particular patient is. So, for example, if I say insulin-carb ratio of 5, that means for every 5 grams of carbohydrates that patient needs roughly one unit of insulin. The lower the number on the ratio means the more insulin resistant the person is. And higher the number means the more insulin sensitive the person is. In other words, if the number goes higher, it means you need less and less insulin with polysing. Right. Um, so going from seven to 20 was a big jump. Um, and same way with the insulin sensitivity, which is again a metric that we use for how many, for uh, each unit of insulin, how many points on the sugar does the level drop? So if the insulin sensitivity is 20, it means for every 20 point drop on the sugar, you need one unit of insulin. So for her, I had to change that from 
10 to 25. Wow. Wow. And what is the physiologic um, release of insulin by the pancreas in a normal, non-diabetic patient? Just so someone can kind yeah. of get it. Uh, Dr. Kitapchi from University of Tennessee in Memphis had done some very groundbreaking research. Um, Dr. Kitapchi passed away last year, but uh, his studies show that for a non-diabetic uh, physiological condition, a uh, person releases around half a unit to one unit of insulin every hour. That is basal insulin without even any food. And then about eight units, eight to 10 units of insulin with each meal. So that turns out to be around 48 to 50 units of insulin a day. But I think those studies are still uh, overestimating, in my humble opinion, are overestimating what normal insulin should be because I've had patients, type one diabetic patients who take 30 units of insulin a day total and they're weighing somewhere around 160, 170 pounds and they're less than what the you know, the physiological data shows about around 40 to 50 units of insulin a day. So, yeah, because my my type 1, the most recent one that I'm working with, she's using 22 to 24. Now, she's little. She's like 100 pounds. Yeah. But it's only, and her blood sugars are always under 200. So yeah. pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's not, I wouldn't go by a set number. Every person has a different range. But uh, we can fairly say that if, if there's a type 1 diabetic who is needing more than 50 units of insulin a day, then there is some degree of insulin resistance that they have developed on top of their type 1 diabetes, which is insulin wow. deficiency. So can you, for those who maybe don't understand, because so uh, I think endocrinology is, is fascinating, but it's also one of the most complex, I think, you know, I remember subjects in medical school when you're studying it, because there's so many cascades and different things that you have to think about. What can you explain for patients? And, and they probably, you know, are, are not patients, but our, our listening audience, what insulin resistance is. Can you explain on a physiological, what does that mean exactly or what's happening? Sure. So insulin is released by the pancreas in response to Food. And most of us understand that, yes, insulin is released when we eat carbohydrates. But what many people don't know is that insulin is also released when you eat certain type of proteins. Many amino acids, which are the building block of proteins, elicit an insulin response from the pancreas. And the same with fats. So insulin is not just released when you eat a carbohydrate-rich meal, but it can be released with even a very protein-rich meal. Hmm. And the purpose of insulin is to open up the gates on the cell wall for the channels to let sugar enter the cells. So for glucose, which is the source of fuel for each cell, it has to enter the cell wall through these glut, uh, uh, glut transporters, which are glucose transporters. And I would think of them as a little lock and key. So unless the key of insulin binds to the receptor on the surface of the cell, and a bunch of enzymatic processes happen inside the cell, the glut 
glucose transporter channels are not going to plug into the cell wall and let the sugar come into the cell. So in simple terms, insulin resistance is where the insulin is binding to the, the key, is binding to the lock on the cell wall, but no process is happening inside the cell. In other words, the, the lock has the key, but it's not opening up. Hmm. When it doesn't open up, the sugar does not enter the cell, so it stays in the bloodstream, and the sugar level starts going high. Right. And that's called insulin resistance. Each portion of the sugar that we, you know, metabolize from the food enters into the muscles, the liver, and the fat tissue. And at all those three sites, insulin effect is essential. So if the insulin binds and it doesn't work the way it should work, then it doesn't show any effect. And the reason the insulin doesn't do its job is because of the buildup of micro particles of fat, which we call lipotoxicity, wherein those enzymatic processes which should be happening inside the cell once the insulin binds to the cell are not happening. Hmm. So the process that is driving insulin resistance is chronic buildup of fat molecules beyond a certain capacity in each cell. That same process happens in the pancreas, which affects the ability of the pancreas to make insulin. That same process happens in the liver cell and the muscle cells, which impairs their ability to process the insulin. So insulin is there, but it is not doing what it's supposed to do. So that's when you start seeing your type 1 diabetics who don't make insulin require more than what we described as a physiologic amount. So that's Mm -hmm. those saturated fats because they're eating typically probably a standard American diet as well. And can you tell us where saturated fats can be primarily found? So saturated fats are found heavily in animal foods. It's not that they are not found in plant-based foods too. Uh, There's coconut oil and uh, avocados, which do have saturated fats. But majority of uh, places where you get the saturated fats are found in animal foods. So bacon, eggs, sausages, different types of meat, uh, even a skinless, boneless piece of chicken has the same amount of cholesterol as a piece of similar weighing piece of steak. Hmm. It's like 86, 89 milligrams. So it, it is kind of a misinformation that you know lean meats are actually lean. There is nothing lean there. Right. So there's a what comes with the animal protein is also the fat and the cholesterol. Yes. So I'm curious about when you mentioned the saturated fats in natural whole coconut oils, not whole foods. So we don't necessarily, you know, I don't recommend oils, but in nuts and things that have, or avocado that have more fat, do you find that those actually cause blood sugars to rise as well in your diabetics? So uh, nuts and avocados uh, are also having other nutrients. They have a lot of vitamins and minerals. Mm-hmm. In addition to the unsaturated fatty acids, along with some saturated fatty acids. So, what I recommend to patients is having a handful of nuts a day, preferably almonds and walnuts, because those are the most uh, antioxidant dense type of nuts. All different nuts have different antioxidants. So, I'm s- suggesting having a variety, but 
focus more on the almonds and walnuts. And when you have a handful a day, you're getting your essential fatty acids, you're getting your essential nutrients and vitamins and trace minerals. And at the same time, you're not uh, creating a state where you're not having animal foods, but you're eating so many, uh, so much amount of nuts and avocado that you're still inciting an insulin resisting response. Uh, there have been people who do a plant-based keto uh, modification with eating a lot of oils and nuts and avocados. And you can still see sugar spiking up if they eat a piece of fruit in spite of eating a plant-based diet. So instead of focusing on the percentage of macros of fat, protein, carbohydrate, what I tell people is to eat the actual different food groups and the macros will automatically be satisfied. But if you look at the numbers, then uh, the magic number is 10%. So if you are eating near or under 10% of uh, fats in your diet, uh, then your insulin sensitivity is a lot better versus if that number goes to 20, 30, 40%. Okay. Has there so ever... Like 10 by the dot, but you know somewhere near 10%. Uh, you know, some may, someone may need 15, someone may need nine, someone may need eight. So in that eight to 15%, uh, you're still good. So has there ever been any studies where they took someone who has been eating like a keto diet or a paleo diet that's, you know, very low in carbs, 50 to 20 grams a day of carbs, basically starving their body and eating a very high you know, animal protein, high fat diet, and then giving them a glucose challenge test to actually see that rise in blood sugar. Has that been done? Um, so there are studies done uh, which show that when people follow keto diet, they're getting flatter sugars and mm -hmm. they're coming off medications, but uh, deliberately they're not doing the studies to show how what happens to the insulin. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're doing that, because if that's shown, then that would that would kind of uh, put a chink in the armor kind of thing. Um, mm. That what we are seeing with flat sugars is just half of the story. The insulin resistance is still happening, and it's happening mm -hmm. even more. Right. I mean, it's going to be low blood sugar because you're not eating sugar. Of course, yeah. it's going to be low. <laughs> this and, isn't and, and people who follow a, a, a keto-based regimen are strictly asked to avoid fruits. And if they have fruits, only berries, which are low glycemic, but not have other fruits. Um, so it's very restricted uh, uh, regimen there. And so if they eat a fruit, uh, they could see a rise in sugars. And on the opposite point, I've actually seen a lot of patients who, if they're eating whole food plant-based and a handful of nuts and uh, some avocado, uh, so it's not zero fat. It is actually you know, getting the healthy combination. They can eat a banana and a papaya and a mango and still not see sugar spiking. Mm -hmm. It's a common mindset that if you eat a fruit, your sugar is going to spike. Like right. tell patients, fruit does not cause diabetes. Right. See, say that again. Fruits do not cause diabetes. Thank you. <laughs> if I have one more person tell me the diabetes, I can't, I can't have a banana. It's too much sugar. <laughs> but I do oh. tell them that don't mix your fruit with cottage cheese. <laughs> and preferably before a meal, because if it gets absorbed, right. 
by itself, it is best processed than if it's eaten at the end of the meal. Okay, very good. That's good. Either as an afternoon snack or before dinner or for breakfast, but mm -hmm. eat fruits by themselves. You know, maybe a handful of nuts with it are okay, but uh, cottage cheese or dairy is, you know, mess up that glycemic response. Absolutely. So when you have uh, a patient, okay, or let's say there's an individual out here who's listening and they're going, wow, this is very powerful and I want to be, you know, try this plant-based diet. They're either a type 1 or type 2 diabetic. They're using insulin or some type of medications that can lower blood sugar rapidly, library, those type of things. Um, what would your be advice to them? Um, should they start this by themselves, which I always encourage people to talk to their doctor, but if they're, let's see, you know, how should they approach talking to their doctor and what should they say or what should they be looking for if they try to eat healthier diet like this, a whole food plant-based diet? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, obviously it should be done under, you know, medical supervision because if they're on medications, that has to be titrated, adjusted down to prevent them and make sure that they don't get hypoglycemia because it can happen very fast if they start making those changes in a matter of few days. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how to bring it up with their physician, I would suggest, uh, you know, reading up um, um, data on Dr. Neil Bernard's study from 2006, where he compared uh, ADA-based, you know, low-carb, high-fat diet head-to-head -head with whole food plant-based diet uh, without portion control, but no animal foods. And at 74 weeks, they were still able to maintain an A1C reduction of 1.5% uh, without any portion control or calorie counting. And people lost weight on average. They felt better. Their A1C got better. Uh, there is uh, studies done on, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Anderson from 1921, where they uh, reversed. People came off insulin within 16 days mm. of uh, being on whole food plant-based diet. So there are a few documentaries that I would I usually suggest to my patients and I would suggest those here too. I don't have any conflict of interest with any of the producers or makers of the documentary, uh, but there's a good way to get that perspective. And then when they approach it with their physician, um, they may have a better you know, understanding of what um, the you know the plant-based nutrition is so the common document that i suggest one is forks over knives mm -hmm. um, what the health uh, plant pure nation and uh, food choices mm -hmm. absolutely another one is uh eating you alive is another good one yeah eating you alive is a good one and the other thing to keep in mind is when they're trying to make a change if they actually just add more vegetables and beans to their diet. Uh, and the beans, uh, only exception is uh, not to have baked beans because they're high in brown sugar. <laughs> brown sugar so the actual beans yeah, um, right. with vegetables, uh, they will start seeing differences in their, in their sugar numbers and then work with their physician to see how you know, they can add fruits and different whole grains in their diet. But definitely consult with their physician. I, I really encourage my diabetics, obviously, to do beans. Can you explain, like, the second meal effect to sure. yes. what that means uh, exactly? For a few seconds, I need to put the charger on my Oh, laptop. okay. 
Not a problem. Yes, yeah, so cuz that was that the second meal effect is I think a really fascinating uh subject cuz a lot of people go, "Oh, I can't eat beans. There's too many carbs in that." I, you know, the the devil is the carb, but it's yes. there's no devil macronutrient. It's just we need to stop talking about food. People go, oh, I have a protein for dinner, and then I have my vegetables. I'm like, you know, the original protein came from plants. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but tell us what the second meal effect is. Yeah, so there is no benefit in having secondhand recycled protein from animals. <laughs> Cut and out the middle cow. Of the protein, which is the plant. <laughs> Plants are the only species which can synthesize protein from the building blocks and the, exactly. uh, you know, the uh, the carbon, hydrogen, sulfur, oxygen, nitrogen. So get the high-grade quality directly from the plants instead of getting it recycled. <laughs> and the other thing I tell them is to not think of food as fat, carbohydrate, protein, but think of food as a combination of nutrients, vitamins, minerals, water, and uh, look at food categories, not look at fat, carbohydrate, protein. So look at vegetables, look at beans and lentils or legumes, uh, look at whole undefined grains like quinoa, brown rice, buckwheat, millet, barley, oats, uh, and look at uh, nuts, look at fruits. So going back to the beans, uh, beans have carbohydrates, but they are very high in fiber. And it's a lot of complex starch uh, with the fiber and a lot of phytonutrients in the beans. Each bean has a different type of phytonutrient and different minerals and vitamins. They're loaded in B vitamins, they're loaded in potassium, they have a lot of uh, magnesium. So when you eat uh, a lentil-based meal, your sugars are actually gonna be more flat and they tend to cause slower absorption of sugar into the bloodstream. And yes, there are a few exceptions. I still have had patients who, in spite of eating beans, may have uh, a sugar uh, elevation that was not that optimal. So yes, there is individualization, but fairly, you know, for 95% of the people, uh, beans still don't cause uh, the sugar elevation that they have been blamed for. Uh, and they actually pre keep it pretty flat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there are cool. two things. Uh, one is the fiber and second is the phytonutrients, which actually prevents a faster sugar absorption or steady. Right, absolutely. So it's the resistant starch like in black beans, which has a huge amount. So, you know, the fiber goes all the way, the starch goes all the way to the end of the colon. That's where it's so good for beans for reverse, yeah. you know, preventing colon cancer and things like that. Exactly. Um, what are your, do you have a favorite story of a patient that, um, you know, just like when you're, when you're thinking about patients, your mind will kind of wander back to and go like, that was a really good, that yeah, so well. kind of a kind of a drastic uh, change story. I would say is uh, a couple of years ago, I, uh, a patient came to see me. Um, she was a fifty-five-year-old lady who had uh, been dealing with diabetes for about seven, eight years, and um, she had seen. So the first thing she tells me as soon as I walk into the room is, "I have seen four other endocrinologists." And all of them have told me to take insulin. I'm not taking insulin. So what else do you have to offer? <laughs> um, it was kind of a disclaimer from her. Um, and then so I sit down and I say, okay, um, 
her A1C was 11% at that time. Mm -hmm. So the other endocrinologists were not wrong in recommending insulin because there is glucotoxicity that happens and it starts killing your uh, beta cells in the pancreas which make insulin. So there is benefit to actually start insulin, get the sugars down while you're working with your plant-based diet to improve your insulin resistance. But somehow she had her mind fixated that she was not going to go the insulin route, which I don't blame her. Insulin is not a fun experience having to take a few times a day. So I showed her the data on plant-based nutrition and research done by Dr. Joel Furman, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Chips, uh, the CHIP program by Dr. Hans Dill in California, uh, and the cardiovascular data by Dr. Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn, and uh, gave her the resources, uh, you know, the documentaries to watch, uh, websites to look up recipes. And uh, three months later, I see her back, and um, her A1C was 6.0. <laughs> he had really gone with going whole food plant-based uh, without yeah. any insulin. And she was on glimperide and metformin, which was not changed. It was continued. Yep. That's amazing. I had one that went from an A1C in 90 days, 11.8 to 6.2. <laughs> and I've seen her over two years now. So she has maintained her A1C amazing. under 7%. Oh, wow. That is so incredible. It's, those are the fun ones, right? That you hear patient, especially if you can get them young. This one was 28 in their late twenties. Um, it's like ah, her whole life out of her. Ah, so just to get more personal, do you have a family yourself? Um, yeah. Um, I am married, uh, my wife and, um, she also happens to be my office manager. Perfect. Does she eat plant-based with you? Yes, we, we are plant-based. Uh, so I started initially and then my mom, uh, my parents live with me. So okay. uh, my mom adapted plant-based nutrition too. And uh, my dad and my wife, they came on board. And so all four of us are whole food plant-based and we're working towards going no oil. Um, nice. so it's an interesting journey. We, you know, the, for the most part, we have eliminated oil from our cooking, but there are still some dishes that we still use oil, and we're working on techniques where we can reduce that or make it just a drop mm -hmm. of oil. Uh, because oils, uh, all the oils are derived from plants, they are highly processed, and the ratio of omega 6 to omega 3 is quite skewed to like 20 to one or 25 to one wow. uh, in many of the oils. And the ideal ratio we need is one to one. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. even with uh, oils, you have to be very judicious in using them. Less is better. Right. right, absolutely. Well, and they're just so rapidly absorbed, right? So there's no slowing down. It's just the oil. <laughs> yeah. um, as far as, um, so you're, you're eating, I'm assuming traditional Indian fare at home and no, do you have, no. go ahead. No, finish your question. I was going to ask if you had a recipe or a favorite food. Cause I know like lentil dal is some of my <laughs> most favorite food. And so like, what, what do you, um, what is your favorite dish that you found that's like, wow, this went really well. So we actually, yes, I eat uh, mainly, uh, you know, Indian uh, cuisine-based diet, but uh, we once a week, we also have pasta. Once a week, we also have Mexican food. Uh, 
uh, you know, um, continental food. We have a Chinese uh, mm. rice. So uh, again, we are all uh, making this at home. I can count on my fingertips how many times I eat out in a year. Um, oh wow! So and it's you know the more you do your taste buds and palates change so that you can actually not handle most of the rest in food because it's leather with sugar, salt, and salt and oil. Mm-hmm. So you stop going to places, but yes, you can still. You don't have to. You can. You're not in a situation where you cannot eat out. You can still eat out. Just make better choices and modifications. Right. Uh, but it's still possible. But uh, we eat a lot of lentils and dals. Mm. Uh, that's pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, there are a lot of Indian vegetables that we cook with a lot of spices and curry. Um, there's a vegetable called bitter gourd, uh, mm. which uh, is very good for diabetes too. Uh, there are a lot of extracts and capsules out there from bitter gourd that you can get, but I prefer eating, getting it from the whole food. So we uh, make you know vegetables from that. And then uh, lentils are part of daily diet. There is some form of lentil that we eat every day. Mm. At least two servings of fruit, a handful of nuts. Um, and I, the part of India that I come from, I've grown up eating vegetarian. So mm. eating vegetarian was kind of a little natural to me. Um, but what has changed is the use of dairy because there is a significant usage of dairy in, in the foods that we traditionally made. So we have worked on finding alternatives on, on dairy in all those foods. Mm. And that has made it really interesting. Like there is a there's a, f- a dish, we, we call it fruit salad. So it's, it, there are a bunch of fruits in it, but it's actually more like custard. There is, there is milk and cream and, you know, it's a kind of a custard consistency. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a dessert, but it used to be my favorite dessert growing up. <laughs> and uh, when I quit dairy for a, quite a while, I couldn't have that. And I was missing out on that. <laughs> and we recently found a way to make it from almond milk. Oh. And um, just, uh, you know, blend up some banana and uh, there's a fruit called chiku. We call it chiku in India, but it's called, uh, it's also found in Mexico. It is, it's a brown tropical fruit. I think it's called zapato. Oh, zapato. Z- okay. zapato. Yeah. So we, we call it chiku in India. Okay, a, a little bit more starchy type thing. Yeah, it's a starchy fruit. So you can blend that up and get that same custody consistency with other mm. vegetables, uh, not vegetables, but fruits in it. So as that's what I said. You know, it's been an interesting journey trying to make changes in the traditional recipes and, you know, make them more whole food plant-based. And uh, right. it's fun. You know, and I, and I think... If I look back over, because I've been uh, eating plant-based for almost seven years now, and when I look back over our my own evolution of <laughs> changing the diet, so we came home to my husband, and I had three teenagers at the time at home. They're all in their 20s now and out of the house. Well, they're home for Christmas now, but um, when it was really interesting, the first year, I think we spent a lot of time eating a lot of you know, the substitute meats and stuff. Cause I was still in my mind thinking I have to replace this type. Yeah. Like I was not as like, I have to replace this consistency and the taste the same. 
But then it started growing, right? So then I started looking at food as flavors, like, you know, where can I start pulling in different flavors? And I don't have to replace meat with a meat substitute. I can do different things. It's okay that it's not exactly the same. So um, one of my, I grew up in New Mexico, so I love Mexican food. So we had a lot of chilies and burritos and enchiladas and all that good stuff. So I recently came up with, you know, using walnuts and lentils um, as a, and roasted um, tomatoes. And I used uh, cumin and chili powder and hatch green chilies from New Mexico, the chilies from New Mexico and um, created like a, kind of a, a ground beef consistency, but then I would roll those in corn tortillas and use an air fryer. Oh, these are things that were that I didn't get to have for a long time called taquitos. Oh my goodness, they're so good. I was like, yes. And so I started sharing those with my husband's omnivore family. <laughs> and they're like, this isn't meat, this is delicious. And they're like, can you bring more of these for Christmas? <laughs> I'm like, you bet. <laughs> so those are, that's what it's funny. You start playing with flavors and textures and you start growing as as a cookie you start enjoying being in the kitchen because it's like Ooh, what am i going to make today that's yummy <laughs> yeah it, it is quite gratifying it's like there is a in in the gujarati cuisine the the part of india that i'm from it's called gujarat and uh, each state has a different cuisine so we make it's a lentil soup made from chickpea flour but we call mm. it kadi okay and it is basically buttermilk mixed with chickpea flour and then tempered with spices and ghee, which is clarified butter. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's very tasty. I'm sure. <laughs> we have it with, uh, you know, rice. So, so that's something that I used to have before, but I was not having it for a while. So we found uh, almond yogurt uh, that you can buy. There's a brand called Kite Hill that we usually buy. Okay. Um, and plain almond not, uh, yogurt, not the flavored one. And we can make the curry from that just like we were making it from yogurt before uh, we even make our own yogurt at home now we can we use peanuts we use uh, almonds uh, cashews uh, mm -hmm. brown rice. so there are many different recipes out there so absolutely we we experimented um making our own yogurt too because i was it was really fun one of my kids my little well he's 20 now but my youngest at the time was I don't know, 15 or 16. They're all plant-based. They're 24, 22, and 20 now. And uh, we he was my always my willingness to experiment with me yeah. in the kitchen. And so you we had... Remember to, you know, be <laughs> to try things. <laughs> and you know what's fun is that he grew up... Um, this was while we were in Colorado. And um, I'm in Washington State now. But he was the... We lived in this little Western town in Colorado. And he relished being the kid that was, you know, vegan or plant-based. He's like, it's kind of cool being the different kid. And I'm like, that is the right attitude to have. And so if you can instill that in your children, that it's fun to experiment, it's fun to be the different one and share these things with people. They're so delighted and excited and it's new. And it's like, wow, that's so fun. And it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. And then uh, what I've also found from patients is when, and my personal experience too, is when you change your diet within a few weeks of eating whole root plant-based, your palate and taste buds change so much, your sense of smell gets so much sharper mm -hmm. that things that you were relishing before really don't seem that appetizing anymore. Mm -hmm. I have patients who don't eat any meat for 30 days and 
they have this steak dinner that they had planned you know after doing this for 30 days they had planned okay i'm gonna have this steak dinner and it ends up being that they really didn't enjoy it as much or they felt like it was like a rock in their stomach that just didn't move after eating it for a lot of hours mm-hmm. so that's what i try to bring up with patients is you know your your body starts telling you what's good for you you just right. have to be attentive to what the body is telling you i mean i have seven persimmon sitting on my counter i'm waiting for them to ripen and it's just like all of us are like eyeing it like i'm gonna get one of those y'all aren't eating all of them because you know there's a short window that they're ripe and then it's like they're not ripe or too too ripe <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. we're all watching them and squeezing them as we walk by like our counters are covered full of, of fruit and vegetables and all sorts of so it's easy for people to grab and and munch and different things but yeah it, it's it's a lot of fun to discover that you have taste and um, flavors that were never dreamt of you know I, it was either like you said you had a lot of dairy and a lot of you have a lot of spices in Indian food but in and I had Mexican spices growing up and stuff but the rest of it was just kind of like potatoes and we'd have vegetables but they were fried but it's always the similar salty flavors but now it's like wow there's all sorts of fun cuisines yeah. that I never even thought of having a lot of fun a lot of fun yeah that's when it becomes more you know fun and 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 a more group activity you know it's not like mm. you just doing it by yourself but your whole family is centered around it mm-hmm. and um when you know you have friends family visiting and they get to experience that they get to learn something new and uh, i've had quite a few uh, friends and family who if they stay with us for a couple of days or a week or whatever um they most of them end up quitting dairy <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so. i found that dairy i can get most people off of dairy just by having a logical discussion with them um you know like milk is made to grow a cow to a thousand pounds in a year what do you think that does to a human body and you know just kind of walking them through that process and it's really interesting because they're like I never thought of it that way. I was like, well, if you have no problem drinking milk, go drink a glass of human breast milk. They're like, I'm like, you're a human. (laughs) And they just look at me like I said something that was like, what are you growing horns out of my head or something? I said, go drink a glass of human milk, you human. (laughs) They're like, no. I'm like, okay, then go drink a glass of breast milk from a cow. This makes no sense. What is wrong with you? (laughs) They're like, ah. (laughs) My grandpa used to remind me every time we are the only species which drinks milk of other species. No other species drinks other species milk. Exactly. It just blows my, I mean, why I never, I mean, I was 41 when I switched over the diet. Like, why didn't I think you, like, what was, what was the block? You always hear that, uh, (laughs) <laughs> kind of a, it's not regret but kind of a, a, a you know analytical moment that uh, why didn't this happen earlier it's like why does it take so long to open up the shoes i'm like i don't understand you know some people intuitively get that like my daughter hated milk like she just like this is gross why would i drink milk like this and they're like that made complete sense to her. But I'm like, well, why didn't it make sense to me? Here's a kid telling me this. It shouldn't make, I'm like, why well, should question? <laughs> That's interesting you bring it up because my wife uh, hated milk. So <laughs> when I would push her or, you know, suggest, okay, have your milk, you know, get your calcium and whatnot. Mm-hmm. My previous incorrect uh, nutritional view. <laughs> uh, 
she would not like that. So as soon as I stop uh, bugging her about the milk, she's like, <laughs> I'm feeling so much happier. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I mean, it really is interesting just looking over the evolution. And I, and I think, you know, after I've been doing this for 10 or 15 or 20 years, it'll be really interesting to see the, the changes and because you like, we've become more and more and more like, you know, like there's no oil now in our foods and I'm very seldom will add salt. And because um, when you go somewhere now and it's like super salty, you're like, you can't wow, I, I have to send it. I've had more than once where they had to take back a food. I was like, I'm sorry, I can't eat this. It's way too much salt. And they're like, yeah. really? It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, if you use it, it should be just a little pinch, you know, but nothing like, oh my goodness. But yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Dr. Patel... Go ahead. There's actually, a, 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 a group of people they are working on creating a, a charter school here in um, Clearwater. Okay. Uh, Saint Pete Clearwater, just forty minutes from uh, Tampa, and they are working on uh, creating a charter school, public charter school, which is going to be completely plant-based. Awesome! So wow. I've been invited there to speak there at their fundraiser next month. Oh wow, that is uh, awesome. Is, what I was trying to suggest is, is things are changing, you know. Absolutely, things are changing. And what's the name of, is there a link or something that you can send to me that I can include? I can send it to you, but it's called awesome. King's Charter. It's what again? King's Charter. King's Charter, okay. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's. I would love to include, so if people wanted to come, if they're in that area, to come and, and watch yeah. you speak, that'd be great. Awesome. Well, I know I've taken you for over an hour. I so apologize. Um, but you're, it's just, I love talking about this stuff and especially to other physicians. And I'm just so thankful for you um, as an endocrinologist, you know, taking that lead. Cause I think you're, you're part of a, a very, you know, generation that's going to hopefully lead others into and that area and pull them into play. So like my daughter's in medical school. She's a second year right now. So I'm like, yes, I birthed one child. That's a doctor going to move into that direction. So, you know, I was like, um, we need more and more people like you who are leading the way in your specialty that's been resistant. So I, I, I applaud you for your efforts. Thank you and gratitude. And uh, thank you to all your viewers and listeners. And uh, thank you to uh, do this, you know, doing, you know, uh, Maintaining a podcast and uh, doing this is not an easy job. So <laughs> it takes uh, a lot of commitment and work and time to first do this and then keep yeah. doing it. And uh, you have connected me to so many other people. So there's an important role that you have played. Thank you so much. I, I think I've become a connector. I, I do like connecting people and I've been doing this for over two years now. And um I get no money from it. It's just, it is a beautiful way to meet amazing people such as yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. <laughs>